So the magic silver box is going to be here on the table where the books are with some paper and some pens. And an intermission, if you write a question on one of these pieces of paper, put it in the magic silver box. And I take that question out during the panel discussion. You win a prize. <laughs> Magic. <laughs> yeah, that's how we do it in Queens. Hi, this is Catherine Lasota, host of LIC Reading Series, a monthly event at LIC Bar in Long Island City, Queens. In this episode of our podcast, you'll hear the panel discussion from our December 12, 2017 event featuring memoir with Abir Hoke, Sarah Perry, and Jason Tugaw. If you want to hear the readings from this evening, just listen to our last episode, and you'll also get to hear all of our readers' brief anecdotes about Queens in addition to their readings. So come with me now into LIC Bar as we start our panel discussion with Abir Hoke, Sarah Perry, and Jason Tugaw. So first of all, thank you guys so much for sharing your your work with us tonight. Um, I'm going to ask some questions before I get to the magic silver box. Um, and this is something that I think possibly each of you did just, you have a gift. Oh, thank you. <laughs> oh, well, look at that. Well, fancy. <laughs> you won a prize already. Um, <laughs> I think that you, you each discussed this a bit in your books uh, in terms of at what point did um, reading and writing become an important part of your life? I, I feel like you each talked about it within your childhood of, of how important reading and or writing was to you and, and when that happened for you and maybe at what point that became something of writing as a thing that you wanted to do. And anyone can start with that. An early memory of like, oh, reading and writing being important to start perhaps. Um, I can start. Um, reading, writing was always really important to me as a kid. I was, I guess, lucky to be a pretty good reader pretty early on. Um, so I had, and I had that reading as escapism. Um, I've been thinking about this lately um, because I, you know, I grew up in a really small town in Maine, um, and I thought, like, how did I have a concept of like what a writer is and that writing is a career? And it was actually Stephen King. Mm. <laughs> of all the weird people um, because he lived just a town over like his second, his second house was nearby. So, uh, you know, the town was always really into like that idea of like the writer as celebrity and the writer is kind of like the interesting hermit that lives among us and like makes these things, you know? Mm -hmm. So I always wanted to do that. Do you feel like an interesting hermit now? I feel like one of those words. <laughs> 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 when I'm lucky, yeah. Um, I uh, I was always a big reader growing up, but I never thought of writing as a as a profession. I thought always thought of it as a hobby, and I actually had a whole career before I turned to write. I was in business for ten years, and uh, when I finally decided to <clears throat> become a writer, it was like an epiphany, and I could suddenly see the future kind of unrolling itself with uh, an ease and um, a lack of stress about the time that I'd had up until that point. So, but it took me a while. I mean, at that time I thought I was really old. I was like 28. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'd spent a lot of time doing other things other than writing before I got there. 
well, I'm dyslexic, so I was not a good reader, but uh, I say that and then I want to qualify by just saying dyslexia is not actually a thing and it's also not what you think it is. Like it literally means language problem. It's really about the perception of shapes and space. And, you know, letters are made of shapes. So that's like what gets complicated. Um, and also no one in my family ever read a book. So I really was like as a teenager. Well, I had a, I was really lucky. I got like very good um, uh, <coughs> like special education as a child. So it helped a lot. And then uh, basically like. I just got obsessed with like writing lyrics for my favorite bands when I was in junior high school and I would write them in a notebook like thinking I'm like I'm writing songs that Duran Duran and Tears for Fears oh, will wow. perform um, <laughs> and that was really the first writing I did. For like the songs that already existed? No, no, I was making up songs well. for them. Yeah. <laughs> and I have them still. I could and those bands still exist. So I'm just have, saying like Have I, you shared? <laughs> have you shared? They do still exist. I have like I've like, you know, like tweeted at them jokingly, <laughs> but so far no response. Um, <laughs> yeah. You guys know your mission now. <laughs> if you're on Twitter. Um, that's um, so do you, uh, do each of you, you have your early song lyrics that you wrote. Do you, uh, Abir and Sarah, have early writing that you look back on now and have thoughts about? I used to write these poems that I will I never want to see again actually and and I hope no one sees them. Um but I, I loved writing. I always did like it. I just didn't think of it as something I was going to do with my life. But yeah, when I look back on old writing anything before I was uh 18 or maybe even 30, um it's <laughs> it's, it's it's not good. <laughs> I'm excited to answer this question um, because I had really encouraging elementary school teachers. I still have these little books that I made in like first and second grade. Um, and I posted one of them on Instagram if you guys want to check it out. I'm Sarah Perry 100. Um, Sarah Perry 100 on Instagram. <laughs> it's the time I turned into a unicorn. It's a little more fun than this book. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm going to check that out. Um, so you guys have all decided to write a memoir. And I, first of all, if you can talk about the amount of time, the total time process, years perhaps, of working on your, your memoirs and maybe how your own understanding of your story changed or not, or if you understand it or not. Um, over the process of writing about your story. Or writing your story, I should say. Um, I, I started writing my uh, Olive Witch book um, in 2001, which is clearly a long time ago. Um, and it only got just got published this year. So it, it definitely took me years, years and years of rewriting it. And then many points in time, I thought it was done and then it wasn't done. Um, and one of the things I um, had to remind myself and other people um, if they asked was that this is just one version of the story mm -hmm. and the version that I chose to tell at that time and certainly it might be different from someone else's version or even the version that I might tell now if I decided to write the same story. 
And in a way, it's a little bit sad because I feel like there were so many possibilities for those stories before I wrote them down. And by writing them down, I've somehow frozen them in stone or something. And, and that's just all that's left and everything else that were possible explanations or versions have disappeared even from my own memory. So, Yeah, same. All of that. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, there are things in the book that I wrote when I was like 17. So like, it's hard to say that, but I guess there was a concentrated period of like three to five years where I, and I also just kept thinking it was finished and then it was never finished. And then it took a really long time to get published. So yeah, all that happened. And I do like, I definitely feel that sense of like containing it. Like the idea of it being a finished story seems impossible. Um, and there could be a million versions of it. And actually one thing I love is like, going around doing readings and like sometimes people are there who are in the book and like hearing how they remember it differently is kind of my favorite thing. <laughs> um, I'd say I started the book in earnest in 2010. So it's, it's been about seven years of sustained work, but there were kind of starts and stops before that. And it's sort of like I wanted to be a writer and this is really the book that was compelling me and I had to get out before I could do anything else. Um, I started it one of the things that changed a lot about it was that I, I wanted to write a memoir without it being about me because I had been the primary mourner for so long and there had been news coverage that focused on me and I just thought like I didn't really need the spotlight anymore. I wanted it to be a lot more about mom and about other people's experience of this thing that had happened that had greatly affected the town. Um, but of course it had to be about me and it had to be filtered through my consciousness and all of that. Um, so that's something that I really had to come around to. You each in your memoirs uh, have uh, sections of your book where you are recounting memories and telling stories from childhood, which is, you know, a, remove quite distant in in years from where you are now and also a different stage of your development in your life and 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 how you viewed the world probably as a child how did you um how did you approach the memories that you had as that person as the adult now writing about those memories did you trust those memories did you did you rework them um uh, well, I guess I'll, I'll start. I would say that I didn't... Trusting them wasn't really my goal, actually. I, I, don't really, I, I don't really think of memory, like accuracy as being the important thing about memory. I mean, sometimes, like maybe in a court case, for example, it's important. Um, or it's I think accuracy is important when it becomes collective. But when it's personal memories, it's really about just cohesion, like feeling a cohesive sense of past, present, and future. And it doesn't have to be true, necessarily. Um, so, but on the other hand, like I have a, like, I still feel like that kid, you know, like I it never went away. Uh, and I have a very like, uh, like compulsive memory. So those things were in my head all the time and writing them down felt like it was like a way of dealing with that. And so there's that. And then, but what I actually did in practice was I would sit down and think like, what is the, what's the memory what does it feel like? What do I think happened? And then let me try to like render it in concrete terms and see what that does to it. And that was t definitely a transformation and maybe you'd say a fictionalization. But 
I was trying to like get at what it felt like more than like what happened. I think that's very true to how I think of it. Um, uh, the truth of, of an experience is not necessarily the, the facts of the experience, but mm. if it gets at what I felt like the place looked like or the, the uh, thing felt like, then I think then I've accomplished what I'm trying to do in nonfiction. Um, yeah, I think this, uh, Jason, you gave me a great opening here because this, you know, mm -hmm. my personal story did become a collective story mm -hmm. um, for this community. And mm -hmm. there also was a court case involved. And when I started this book, though, like I wanted to be a much cooler writer. Like I wanted to be like John Dakota or Lawrence Slater and like be mm -hmm. blending the line between fiction and nonfiction and being like more artistic. And um, I really think like every writing project has its own needs and pressures and desires and this book did not give a shit about like what kind of like trendy writer i wanted to be mm -hmm. um <laughs> it had to be really as journalistically mm -hmm. verified as i possibly could so even with like very personal memories um unfortunately i was a nerd growing up so i had a lot of journals and things unfortunately <laughs> i think no, you're and, probably in a room with a lot of nerds okay um so i had like contemporary even though it was me talking to myself i had contemporary records of some things um and then i had you know access to all these police files of people mm -hmm. we knew who would tell stories from you know things that i remembered growing up um tell the stories from their own perspectives so i had a lot of like triangulation that i could do um which was really good really effective um i think is it andre de who the quote of memoir is not about what happened but it's about what the fuck happened right. yeah. <laughs> is that my, i think it's i, I think i'm recording so, yeah. is that right am i right yeah I'm getting some nodding <laughs> affirmations in the crowd i mean right there's another great quote by aga shahid ali where he says your history gets in the way of my memory mm -hmm. which i also think is great so um so then what about how you ended up structuring the books? Because in some of them, it goes back and forth in time. And can you talk a little bit about the decision of how you came to have the structure for for your memoir that you had? Um, and how, I mean, maybe did it start that way or did it evolve that way? Yeah. Um, I can talk about this because this was the biggest challenge of putting this book together. Um, I had kind of a... a pre-made problem with this story because I didn't want to be kind of capitalizing on the whodunit suspense and this story where, you know, a beautiful young woman is killed and then you kind of move on from that and she disappears from the narrative and then you're really more concerned with the titillating crime and, you know, the guy who did it and then you have a court case and then everybody goes home happy. I didn't want to do that. I wanted it to be a, as much about mom's life as it was about her death. Um, but the story still had this inbuilt kind of momentum and suspense. So I was trying to, I, it was sort of something I had to work with and against. Um, so what I ended up doing was the first, I think 60% or so of the book is in sections called before and after, and that's before and after the murder. So you basically get like an introduction and then the murder, and then you go all the way back to mom's childhood and you come up through until those threads kind of come together and then you move forward in time. Um, and the main thing that that does is it keeps her in the narrative longer. It also kind of slows down the thrill that the reader can be getting out of the crime story. And hopefully my hope is um, making the reader maybe be a little reflective about like that reaction in oneself. 
I have um, my my book has this uh, one chapter which is set in a psychiatric ward, um, and it's kind of like a climax of the story. And originally, it was just all one chapter, and was sort of maybe two thirds of the way through the book. And I've had several readers over the years for this book, and one of the suggestions one of my readers had was to take this psychiatric ward section and split it up and put it all like interleave it throughout this throughout the book um, to create tension actually so maybe the opposite thing of what you were you were talking about um, where I was trying to um, kind of create tension throughout different so you were trying to see where um, how I get to that place of this ward and then at some point the psychiatric ward pieces end and then it moves forward for the last third of the book um, but yeah, it was interesting for me. I I had it non-chronologically ordered at first, and then I put it all chronologically, and then I you know interleaved this section of the this chapter all throughout. And I had more trouble trying to figure out what was important um, to leave in and what to take out. I had an agent I worked with for a while who didn't like. I have this you know the Nigeria section, the America section, and then the Bangladesh section. And she didn't like the bon the American section. And so I ended up cutting a whole bunch of the American section. And then when I finally ended up not working with her and I was working with an Indian publisher, they didn't like the Bangladesh section. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, if I show it to a Nigerian, will they be like, just cut the Nigeria section too? Um, so anyway, I, I had a lot of trouble trying to figure out what was important to each of, you know, to different groups of people. Um, and I spent a lot of time rewriting it because I think I also didn't realize when I was writing to put at first, you know, I had sort of ungenerously assumed this American uh, agent was thinking that the Nigerian and Bangladesh sex sections were exotic and the American one wasn't. But I think what she was trying to get at was that um, you couldn't tell like who I was in the story. You couldn't tell that I was this Nigerian Bangladeshi in America because I hadn't put those cues in because to, to me they were already embedded. But then you have to actually make that mm -hmm. uh, more visible to a reader so they can see what the things are that you are struggling with and how you are different from your space, uh, the space that you're in. So yeah, so I, it took me a long time to come to a, you know, a place where I was happy and felt like the, um, you could see it. You, I still think the three sections are kind of all different because I'm a different person in all three of them, but that they kind of come together in some way. Um, yeah, I, my, I, I originally wrote like more than twice as much as what's in the book. And it was, um, and I had a really hard time letting go of all that other stuff. And then one thing I did also kind of maybe <laughs> trying to be a cool writer was I chopped it all up and made it non-chronological -chron and it. like, you know, whatever, it didn't work. It was, <laughs> didn't, did not work. But then there were little things that did, that did work non-chronologically. So I left a some in. And that was just much less um, disruptive, and and honestly, like in the in the final rounds, the way I made decisions was really about like, does like what do I like if I include this, does it make you want to turn the page? And if it doesn't, I took it out. And there's like a lot of stuff I really like that I took out that just didn't do that. And honestly, it was because like I just fucking wanted to get it published, like, and it, and it was hard to do that because it's like not a, I, it's not a redemption story, and it's I think it's hard to publish a memoir that isn't that.
Jason, did you determine that yourself? What what made you want to turn the page, or did you have readers looking at that saying to you, like, "This makes me want to turn the page"? Uh, I had people t like tell me that was important, and then I decided myself <laughs> what that might would be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what else you wanted to know about your life? <laughs> I mean, it like didn't feel like my life at that point, uh -huh. really. Like it was felt like something else. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. I get an agreement there. It doesn't feel like your life at a certain point. Some days it doesn't feel like my life lately. I, you know, you've created this thing and worked so hard yeah, on this yeah. thing and it's, and it's so locked in. I think that right. that aspect that someone mentioned before contributes mm -hmm. to that because it's like it, you become external to it in mm -hmm. a strange way. Would you say that the ultimate structure really did have the, and I mean, Abir mentioned this a bit, but had the input of multiple people, agents, editors, and and maybe the story that you ended up telling was guided by the people who were part of that process? Oh, for sure. For sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, I mean, yes, it's a, yes, of course. It's a I just, collaborative I mean, process. Yeah. Like, at what point does it get to be so, cl I mean, how, you know, how much is a solitary practice and how much is that collaborative process? I mean, I think of some people who contributed to this book, and it's just kind of amazing that their names are just buried in acknowledgments. Like, yeah. it's a really strange mm. industry in that way. Yeah, I mean, I would say capitalism, honestly. Like, <laughs> it, it's like you could write, I mean, you could write it however you want and just keep it and not, you know, but if you want to sell it, you have to deal with other people and institutions. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, how it is. All right, I'm going to ask one more question and then I'm going to get right here into the silver box, you guys. And that question is, what, if anything, surprised you the most about the reception of your memoir once it was out in the world? For um, yourself or reception from other people? Uh, I, My brother and my sister are in my book and I didn't realize this, but their friends um, looked at my book as they're telling their story as well, which I hadn't thought about. Obviously, it is, in a way, telling their stories through my filter. Um, but it was really lovely, like, how many of their friends would come up to me and say, oh, I loved, you know, learning about baby Maher, my brother, or learning about how my, you know, my sister's life had sort of come through in, in different chapters. And so I wish I had actually spent more time um, putting their stories in into the book uh, because I'll I tell think you it how. was really nice for, for them also to have this outlet. Yeah, for me, the biggest surprise was that my family did not lose their shit. Like, they, <laughs> they are not, they're like very, very dramatic people. And, um, and I was terrified, literally like anxiety attack, terrified for like, seven years about even like <laughs> letting them know it was happening and then uh they didn't freak out really at all and that was kind of amazing and then the second thing that's been really really nice is that people say <laughs> people with really different complicated lives say things like that helped me think about my experience and thank you and that is like not a thing i anticipated and has been very very moving um I don't know what the most surprising thing has been, but one of the most touching things that keeps happening is people telling me that their parents have read the book. 
mm. and really like it are people's, you know, their moms have or, you know, people I don't even know, moms writing me and saying my daughter and I both read it and talked about it. And it's kind of amazing to think of that moment happening without you even being in the room. Powerful. All right. You guys, it's time for some magic. <laughs> so we have to decide who's going to get the first question. And the way we're going to do that is I'm thinking of a type of juice. <laughs> and you're all going to tell me a type of juice, and whoever's closest will get the question. Jason, go. Apple. I knew you'd say that. Grapefruit. Orange. Okay, you guys. We have apple. We have apple, grapefruit, and orange. I was thinking. Grapefruit. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> <laughs> it's important. <laughs> it's very different. Um, I was thinking of cranberry. And so, tell me what you think about this. But because some grapefruits are red, right? Do you agree with me? A beer. So, right, right, raise your hands. <laughs> Who thinks Jason got it with apple juice? Closest to cranberry, closest to cranberry. Raise of hands. Who thinks a beer got it with grapefruit? Oh. It's real close, but I it's think it's... Close. I think it's... How about you both answer this question? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and um, whoever asked this question gets a... Because two people are answering it. Two drink tickets. <laughs> All right, you guys. Do you make New Year's resolutions? And if so, what is one for 2018? Who asked this? All right. First of all, do you make resolutions? Secondly, two parter. I hate making resolutions. I hate breaking promises, so I just don't make them. <laughs> I am strongly opposed to the idea of New Year's <laughs> resolutions. I hate them. I hate the whole idea. I think change is incremental, and I'm against it. Are you are you satisfied <laughs> with your cantankerous <laughs> authors? Uh, okay. Well, I think I'm just going to give the next question to Sarah, Sarah. because, okay. all right. So this question, let's see, what are we going to do? Oh, I have an idea. Whoever, I have an idea, you're going to get a prize. <laughs> um, thanks, thanks for thinking I'm funny, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever asks this question... Um, this is a gift certificate to a lovely cafe in our neighborhood at, called LIC Corner Cafe. You know it. It's love. Yes, they're lovely people who who own this place. It's near the Court Square Station, so it's it's lovely, lovely coffee, lovely all kinds of food. Bake, they bake delicious pies. I would get a pie. I would get pie. But you, Carl would get cookies. Quiche sandwiches, soup. They're doing soup now. I had chicken soup today. It was delicious. Okay, let's move on. 
All right, Sarah. What this is a this is a intense one. What three books and oh god. Oh god. <laughs> what three movies oh god. would you take or make? Take. Take, I think. If Earth were exploding and you had to leave on a spaceship. Oh my god. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 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 oh my god. Oh my gosh. My I'm so glad. That's great. Good thing you have a spaceship. Yeah. First of all. Yeah. And does this spaceship I wish I have had like one a, right now? Does it have a, a DVD, a Blu-ray, a VHS? I mean, what are you taking? VHS beta? You know, people often, you guys probably get this question, like, oh, you wrote a memoir, you wrote a whole thing about your life. Like, don't you feel exposed? I don't, but I feel exposed by this question. Yeah. <laughs> um, books, I don't know. Um, I'm just going to pull stuff out. Um I would take Autobiography of a Face by Lucy Greeley because it's perfect. Um, maybe The Summer Book by Tova Jansen, which is this perfect little lyrical book about nothing that happens on an island and it's beautiful. Um, and something long. I have to pick something long. Like Anna Karenina or something like that that I could just <laughs> read over and over and cry into or I'm not sure. Um, movies. Sleepless in Seattle is the movie I've seen more than any other movie, mm -hmm. so I'd bring that. Um, <laughs> Wayne's World, because obviously. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, is something else really long? Movie. Oh, but I already movie. have Sarah like a books. heavy Russian here. Right? Yeah. When you're in the movie? Yeah. Something something moody. Something like oh. sure. <laughs> <No>. Nerd. <laughs> okay. Alright. Okay. Um did we get three movies from you? We did? I'm take I'm taking his. Sure. Okay. Alright. That was a great question. All right, I I don't know what to do because the first the first question went to two people, so we're just gonna I don't I mean like maybe maybe you're just all gonna get the rest of the questions. I'm gonna do two more, I think, two or three maybe. All right. Um, for a bonus, just to throw in the middle, for a box of tiny conversation hearts, <laughs> you can top your cupcake. <laughs> you guys, if you could pick one author of color to have lunch with and talk about writing, who would it be and what would you want to discuss? Who asked this question? Yes. Which I find appropriate because it's a question about who would you like to talk with. So again, the question is, if you could pick one author of color to have lunch with, and talk about writing, who would it be and what would you want to discuss? Well, it's super easy for me. I, All would, right. I would choose Kazuo Ishiguro. 
And so like we're talking about writing is what you're saying? I mean... I kind of want him to tell me everything. You would talk about writing, but what would you want to discuss? Oh, okay. So we're talking about writing. We'll talk about that. I would want him to tell me everything he knows about um, soccer. (laughs) (laughs) He knows a lot. Okay. (laughs) Um, Sorry. I think I'd want to talk to Chimamanda Adichie and talk about trans issues because I think she'd have a lot of, I would like to get that like from the source and have a conversation because I know there was a lot of controversy there and I'd just be interested to get it straight from her. Um, There's so many authors, Uh, probably the one that just first came to mind is Yag Yassi who just, who wrote Homegoing, Mm. which was one of my most favorite reads of this year and I think is uh, brilliant and so far reaching and I would love to and it's her first book and she's really young and I would love to just sit down and just you know listen to how she came up with it and how she researched it and how she wrote it and um, yeah I think it's a really important book good question um, okay <laughs> next question also for all three of you this person But in this magic little envelope is a card that says Astoria Bookshop. Oh, Oh, snap. (laughs) And this is a gift certificate. It's good for in-store purchase. Go visit this lovely bookshop in Astoria. The question, so at what point do you need to tell your family you're writing a book about them? <laughs> you get a book certificate. I'll, uh, maybe I'll, I'll start. Um, I, when I was writing the memoir and I finished a version of it in, in 2003 as my MFA thesis, uh, my, um, I told my parents and I was terrified of what they'd think of it because uh, it had like drugs and sex and, and, and other things that I didn't think they would want to read about. Um, and my mom said something really lovely, which was, um, we're really proud of you and we'll read it when it gets published. And I thought, sweet, I have, I've got some time. <laughs> Except I didn't realize it would be like another 13 years. But, um, and then when it did finally get published, uh, and this is, a little bit sad, but my dad is now now has Alzheimer's, and he was the one I was really afraid of it reading because he's super judgmental. Um, but now he doesn't read books anymore. Um, he's still uh, really functional, and we can have conversations. But he isn't going to read my book, which I'm really thankful about. And and my mom is super supportive and read it and loved it and and said so. So that was. Uh, my answer to that was really like when I know it's going to be published. Otherwise, and I think the answer has to be like, are your family like trustworthy people who you would want in your lives if you didn't have to be accidentally born into them, which is the answer would be uh, no for me. So, um, (laughs) so like I feel some responsibility, but not a ton. Um, Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, I interviewed a bunch of family members for the book, so I had to tell them early on. But I was also in grad school while I was doing that process, so I did a lot of like trying to tell them because I guess I was optimistic that it would be a real book. Um, and you know, so I was nervous that they had said all these things, like thinking this was just like a cute school project. Mm. Um, uh, but things have gone pretty well, actually, as far as the exposure. They've been pretty cool. All right, guys. We're down to the last magic silver box question, and uh, it's a good prize. So it's a good question. They're all good questions. But uh, whoever asked this question, the owner of LSE Bar also has a lovely restaurant down the street called The Gantry. Great food, great cocktails. It's a gift certificate to The Gantry. What? Mm. I think their kitchen might be open till 11 tonight. Or better, come back next month, get dinner at the gantry before you come on down here. So, this is for all you guys to close out our evening. What? And I think you guys can handle this. <laughs> what is the kinkiest slash sexiest thing you have ever written about Bonus points if it's true. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> um, I think you should start. <laughs> um. So I'm gonna be honest. I guess. The best um, way to be. It's not in this book. There's plenty. There's plenty of sex in that book but um i finished a novel recently that has a porn plot so there's plenty of sex in that too and um so like the what was it kinkiest slash, slash sexiest oh yeah i don't know those are different <laughs> you can get, pick one pick one okay i'll pick one uh so there is like a the 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 narrator of that book is like kind of a, a charming sociopath who's like really obsessed with how good he is at everything and he starts doing porn and he gets like a, a group scene named after him it's called like donnie's orgy or something i can't remember what it's called <laughs> but he's like super psyched that he's like the focus of the orgy that's his whole thing and so it's like an orgy with like seven people of various genders uh doing a lot of stuff and it's pretty intimate so that intimate yeah. <laughs> I'm writing a collection of um, travel themed erotic short stories which uh, combine two of my writing loves writing about travel and writing about sex and so I've got um, different stories that are some are travel stories some are gay stories some are lesbian stories um, there's one story that's just about with one person so it's just about masturbation um, but I think the story that I like the best in the in the group is uh, it's a lesbian story set in Dhaka. Um, I don't know very many lesbians in Dhaka. I know some gay men. Um, I know one gay woman. And um, so anyway, I was trying to set a story there which is going to necessarily be transgressive, unfortunately. And I would like to have it be less so because, um, but it's hard to write these stories uh, in, in spaces that are more conservative and, and not have them be transgressive. But um, I have a love story between these two women who are working at a bank 
and um, and all the ways that they um, try to you know be together. And uh, sometimes it's like in the bathroom of the bank, and sometimes it's in the car at like a intersection, and sometimes it's just in their own homes. And in Bangladesh, a lot of times there's no privacy because there's always people who are working in and around. And so this idea of like trying to find a space where they're just the two of them alone is kind of a for me it was um, it was a challenge and also like a, um, something that was uh, I would love to do well for them. Well, that sounds really beautiful. <laughs> um, I write erotica when I get stuck on my other stuff sometimes. Um, I The way I met my last girlfriend was that I took adult beginner ballet from her. Um, she's literally a ballerina. So um, I have this story I wrote where she keeps me after class and punishes me for being a terrible student. Oh my God. Do you know that Jane Sibbery song, Dancing Class? No. You should totally go home and listen to that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay, who knew how perfect a question that was going to be for this panel? Thank you for that. You guys, thank you so much. Jason, Abir, Sarah, thank you. LIC Bar. That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years, LIC Corner Cafe, Sweet Leaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and The Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens.